Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. I'm working on my next book, so in this season, I'm talking to game-changing leaders in and around the oil and gas industry to learn how companies can translate decarbonization aspiration into action. However, today's show will be different. We have two very special guests, Senators John Higginlooper and Senator Bill Cassidy. We want to learn about a world where energy politics does not have to be so polarized. I got to work with Senator Higginlooper when he was governor of Colorado, and Adam and Teen's Kayla Dolan worked with Senator Cassidy before coming here to Adam and Teen. So let me tell you a little bit about each of them. Senator Higginlooper is a Democrat from Colorado. He has a master's degree in geology and earth science and a BA in English language. He started working as a geologist at Buckhorn Petroleum in 1981 and later is famous in Colorado for founding Wincoop Brewery in 1987. He began in politics in 2003 when he became the Denver mayor. He served in that position for eight years before becoming the governor of Colorado from January 2011 to 2019, and now he serves in the Senate. Senator Cassidy is a Republican from Louisiana. He received a BS from Louisiana State University, and he got his MD from LSU School of Medicine, where he later taught medical students. During this time, he also co-founded the Greater Baton Rouge Community Clinic. His work in politics started when he was elected to the Louisiana State Senate in 2006. He was later elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 2008, and he began in his Senate seat in 2014. You can learn more about both of the senators in the biographies in our show notes. One thing for you to look forward to in our conversation today, uh, listeners know that I'm a big fan of the idea that two things can be true at the same time. And one of our senators calls the other senator a walking contradiction. Now here's my conversation with the senators. I hope you enjoy listening as I enjoyed recording. Well, Senators Higginlooper and Cassidy, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. It's wonderful to have you both here. Thanks Great for having here. us. I look forward to it. I love having both of you on because last year you and other senators worked on the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Can you tell us a little bit about what this collaboration was like between the two of you? And I'll ask you, Senator Higginlooper, to go first. Well, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, this was the largest climate change bill we passed to date, but it, and it was bipartisan. And some of the big pieces, you know, are the reforms we enacted on transmission siting, you know, basic infrastructure necessary to get to this great transition, funding for the new electric trans, uh, transmission. So grid needs as we electrified, uh, you know, there was, there was broad alignment between Republicans and Democrats there. Bill, as one of the more responsible Republicans, was kind of at the forefront of that. Uh, Also, a lot of funds for carbon capture and storage, clean hydrogen, direct air capture. These were all pretty, pretty strongly bipartisan. I'm delighted by this opportunity to have a Republican and a Democrat on together. And I will surely be emphasizing that throughout in in these partisan times. Senator Cassidy, what was it like for you to get to work on something bipartisan these days? Well, of course, you come to the Senate and you want to get something done. This was an opportunity to get something done. And there was a point at which uh, there was a couple of parallel groups working on this. But I think and then there was a primary group, if you will. Senator Capito and others were negotiating with the White House. And then we had some other groups working. Working independently of that effort. And at some point, the Senator Capito's group broke down 
And as it turns out, it's because they weren't really including an energy section. And the White House really wanted an energy section. So in one sense, it was easy because in the previous Congress, at that time run by Republicans, we had authorized a lot of stuff, but not funded it. Carbon capture, sequestration, 45Q, that sort of thing. This one actually funded it. And so there was a bipartisan effort that really came together and solved the contradiction. I think Hickenlooper is a walking contradiction. Uh, he is a geologist who formerly explored for oil and gas and who's now an environmentalist. But I would argue then on second thought, that is not a contradiction. Because if you look at the folks who are the best advocates for CCUS and for the 45Q, they were all the senators from uh, carbon states. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'd like to think there's more common ground than people thought. And I'd like to think we're seeing the fruition of that common ground. And I'd like to think that it's the basis for future work together. I agree that it's not necessarily a contradiction because Senator Higginlooper hails from, from my state of Colorado. And we have such a rich 150-year oil and gas history, but also such a rich environmental leadership history. So, Senator Higginlooper, what are you most proud of, of that that came out of that legislation? Well, you know, it's taken wind and solar decades to get from their kind of early niche applications to really some of the fastest growing energy technologies out there. And I think as our investments can turn even one more clean technology into that kind of success story, you know, from these investments, it's going to be worth every penny. And, you know, Senator Cassidy and I see eye to eye on, I think, a large majority of these things. But I always try to get at that first in my first sentence to describe the the urgency I feel to really get to a clean energy economy. And I realize we're not going to be able to flip a switch and transition to clean energy overnight, but we've got to do everything we can to get there as soon as possible to reach net zero emissions. And, you know, I think energy companies can help us do that. You know, one's a commitment to helping companies deal with their own emissions and making sure that, uh, you know, we see more and more companies putting forward ambitious targets targets for their scope one and, and two and, and even three scope three emissions. That's progress. And I think different companies have different visions. You know, some companies like Occidental, which is a company that bought out my old company, uh, but they're going all in on carbon management and investing in massive projects like their Megaton facility in the Permian Basin. And some of the others like BP, they're diversifying their portfolios and investing in massive renewable projects like, like the light source BPs. They've got a bighorn solar project out, out in the Rocky Mountains. It's, I think, got a lot of potential. So uh, we need everything and, and we need it as fast as we can possibly get it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And in fact, on this podcast, we argue that addressing climate change with urgency happens better, faster, cheaper with the oil and gas industry fully engaged and at the table. And so pivoting to that idea of, of net zero, Senator Cassidy, Louisiana is such a, a great state also with a rich history of, of oil and gas production. What do you see as a net zero future for a state like that in something like 15 years? So I tell folks back home that the Infrastructure and Jobs Act bill allows our state to not just catch up with other states on things like broadband, but to leap ahead as regards the next generation type economy. I just had a gentleman in my office who is uh, uh, got a company uh, making hydrogen, and um, they're going to make millions of tons of hydrogen. Apparently, it's projected that in 20 or so years, hydrogen will be a $10 trillion industry worldwide. A lot of that will be blue hydrogen. It'll be hydrogen in which the hydrogen is split from the carbon using methane as a feedstock. 
the carbon is either used in another product line or it is sequestered. I'm sorry, the carbon is, and then the hydrogen itself is used for whatever hydrogen would be used for. Louisiana is going to be on the forefront of that. I also, in the Infrastructure Jobs Act bill, there is funding for direct air capture. Apparently, direct air capture works best in a warm, humid environment. Louisiana raises its hand. (laughs) We don't want that cold, frigid stuff on some mountain with people freezing to death in Colorado. Uh, We want people uh, walking around in T-shirts in December, where, where you actually have the ideal climate, and we are that ideal climate. And lastly, we have a lot of very energy intensive industry. So going back to small modular nuclear to be used for a set of power plants, if they wish to decarbonize, then they could go to, and currently they're co-generating with with natural gas, there'd be a prime opportunity for a project such as that to be able to generate, which is basically baseload for a defined population. So I think we have lots of opportunities from CCUS, from uh, making hydrogen with sequestration or end use of the carbon otherwise, and direct air capture to be on the forefront. We've got lots of opportunity in Louisiana. It's so exciting to envision that future. And I want to come back to something you said, Senator Higginlooper, because it's so important as a senator who is committed to a rapid transition to a clean energy economy, but you clearly understand the the need for oil and gas during a transition period. It is sometimes hard for oil and gas companies to be at the table or participate in bipartisan ways. What are things that Democrats Democratic leaders need to see from companies so that they so that you can engage constructively with our industry in this era of political polarization. Well, obviously, there got to be a, a, a common uh, alignment and recognition of the urgency necessary to address climate change. And I think the more loudly that I think the industry proclaims that, the the more likely we are to build up some trust. I think that, you know, sometimes when the oil and gas industry, when they're lobbying, when they're aligned, their, their lobbying is aligned with their individual ambitions, you know, that they put their efforts into pushing for where they're putting their uh, initiative shows where their focus is. And I think when a company says we're reducing our emissions, but would like you to support, you know, other policies that create, create, you know, economy-wide emissions and make them, you know, ridiculously high, that's a head scratcher, but it is more common than you might think. And I think the American Petroleum Institute, I think is now on the right track. They're designing a specific carbon pricing proposal, including dividends back to citizens to offset the increased fuel costs for you know, for working people. And that's a big part of this is we've got to recognize as we get to that clean energy future as quickly as we can, we don't want to have the financial burden on the shoulders of of working people so that they're all of a sudden spending 200 bucks a month to heat their home or, you know, or or 150 bucks a, a month to run their automobile. We will be right back to the Energy Thinks podcast. But are your company's ESG efforts falling behind the sector? Find out by downloading ESG in 2022, Adam Mateen's latest white paper, to find out which moves ESG leaders in oil and gas are making and what's now standard across the industry. Download ESG in 2022 today at energythinks.com. And now back to the show. That's really insightful. I think this idea that 
oil and gas industry leaders have to be civic industry leaders and focus on this this urgency and sense of building trust is really is really important. And I, I'm excited, Senator Cassidy, that you mentioned hydrogen because um, both Colorado and Louisiana are part of efforts to create hydrogen hubs. Um, hydrogen is a way we can imagine repurposing a lot of both the infrastructure and the engineering expertise of the oil and gas industry. So it can really capture a wide range of imaginations. So I would love I would love to hear Senator Cassidy just your thoughts on this hydrogen hub opportunity. Well, just had a wonderful conversation coming into with a gentleman who's actually implementing others' vision of how hydrogen will be used. So first, we know some of the simple ways it can be used to decrease emission. It can bleed into a natural gas line so that it uh, basically maintains the energy or the heat output of natural gas, but at a lower carbon footprint. Uh, it can be used as a propulsion fuel. And that's the conversation that we had. And it would be a basically zero emissions propulsion fuel. Hydrogen, as we know, can come from a variety of sources, uh, you know, and, and Senator Hickenlooper would speak about green hydrogen, maybe from some wind, excess wind capacity or nuclear in an off hour in which the electricity is used for electrolysis so that the hydrogen produced basically is a story, a form of, of energy storage. I was discussing blue hydrogen where it would be made as a, a product from natural gas. And this fellow was talking about how there's industrial processes which throw off hydrogen currently is being burned, but it could be captured and it could be used for all the other reasons that we would use hydrogen. So I think innovation is part of this. Once we create that market for hydrogen and it's rapidly growing, innovation will figure out how to develop hydrogen in the least expensive way. And if there is a reason not to make gray hydrogen, so-called hydrogen from natural gas with release of the uh, carbon into the atmosphere, people will figure out how to do green and blue hydrogen. So I think it's pretty exciting. And as we encourage folks to lower emissions, I think there's got a, again, maybe a $10 trillion, $10 trillion a year market, as somebody has predicted. Yeah, just to piggyback on that, the hydrogen hubs are a, a, one of the signature parts of the Infrastructure Act that I think is really exciting. And as a former governor, I love seeing the friendly competition between states. We compete and then we steal each other's best ideas because we're all working for the good of our country. When I was back in Colorado a couple of weeks ago, I went up to the Colorado State University's Energy Institute, which is a big part of an effort to expand hydrogen research in Colorado. And as just like Louisiana, we have a lot of natural gas production, as well as a lot of land suitable for sequestration. So uh, I haven't, you know, I'm, I'm as interested in blue hydrogen as I am as green. Green is obviously uh, is a better solution, but you have to, we have to look at all these things that are being funded by the Infrastructure Jobs Act to find out which ones are the most promising and, and where do we, how do, how do we fit together this jigsaw puzzle of a plan for the next 40 or 50 years? We have places in Colorado like the Natural the National Renewable Energy Lab, which leads the nation in, in the research and development for electrolyzers uh, and perhaps the best combined solar wind resource in the country. And as, as Bill just mentioned, 
that you know hydrogen becomes a great way to to store that excess energy when at times when you don't need it well and then to build on that there is a certain amount of regionalization in this so for example louisiana is working with oklahoma arkansas and texas let's look at what each of those brings louisiana can bring both blue hydrogen and sequester you know with this, with the geology which is ideal to sequester the carbon which is thrown off but we also have a huge maritime industry and so if you're going to use hydrogen as a propulsion fuel in bar is going up, our push boats going up and down the Mississippi are going out into the ocean to take things out to the ocean. What an ideal place to drop a fuel cell. Oklahoma has natural gas, but Oklahoma also has lots of windmills. And so they can use their excess windmill for uh, uh, electrons for electrolysis. One of the problems with windmills is you got to get the electrons from Oklahoma to Atlanta. It has been a hard time getting the power line, the, the right of way for the power lines. Well, now we could do it there and use it for propulsion. Arkansas also has fossil fuel, but Arkansas has these big shipping companies, Walmart, J.B. Hunt, and others. And so they actually are an end user for a class one vehicle in which they could they could use it on the road. So each brings both a ability to develop, but also a use case that is distinct, but then benefits the other. It's really exciting to think about these hydrogen hubs in the U.S. And you hearken Governor Higginluber to this idea of for the good of the country. I want to pivot for a moment and talk about the role of our country uh, for the good of the world and geopolitics. So I've been making my case in, in, in my work that um, North America's oil and gas industry produces the cleanest molecules in the world. And in this moment of Russian aggression in Ukraine and really an energy crisis happening, there are few countries better suited than our country to both meet the dual challenge of addressing climate and decarbonizing while also meeting this moment. So I'm just curious, Governor Higginlooper, how do you think about this moment, energy security, our, our role in energy diplomacy around the world, and this extraordinary domestic resource that we have as well? Well, I think there's bipartisan support in the Senate for exactly what you're talking about. And I know uh, Senator Cassidy, uh, Senator Kramer from North Dakota have been talking around a lot of what you're just describing, this notion that we can, as we go towards a clean energy economy, we're going to have to recognize that that we can't put that burden, as I said before, on the shoulders of working people and give them, you know, they're going to, they can't spend five or six bucks every time they, five or six dollars per gallon every time they fill, fill up their gas tanks. Uh, we need to make sure that we have the oil and gas we need. And that is doubly true in international relations where, you know, we've got to wean not just Ukraine, but Europe off of the this filthy natural gas and filthy oil that's coming out of Russia. And, you know, some of the other dirtiest, dirtiest molecules, as you call them in the world, come out of Venezuela, uh, Iran, other dictatorships, oligarchies. And this is an, a golden moment where the U.S. can help backfill in this transition, keeping in mind that we've got to get to a, a renewable future as quickly as we can. We can help Europe and our, our closest allies to get through this very difficult time, help create jobs in, in our country and address climate change at the same time. So, you know, infusing oil and liquid natu liquefied natural gas into the global market to replace a Russian shortfall is great. And we'll get, I mean, we've got to keep our eye on the ball. We've uh, got to be 100% focused on renewables and nuclear and, you know, decarbonized fossil energy as available. But in the short term, there's a real role that, that, that the fossil fuels can play in this kind of geopolitical jigsaw puzzle. 
Yeah. And I like the metaphor. I mean, it's the, the, the dirty molecules being replaced are dirty in every sense of the word. They're higher, higher emissions and then politically speaking as well. So Senator Cassidy, what are your thoughts on the role of U.S. energy and, um, and the ability to address climate goals while at the same time really working towards energy security around the world? We've been thinking about this very deeply. Paul Kennedy in 1988 wrote a book, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. And in it, he described how historically, as an economy increases in size, it uses more energy. As it becomes richer, countries use that money that they spin off from their economy to militarize. If he wrote that book today, he would, he would put in emissions. But this is the way the emissions would factor into that. In around 2004, 2005, the U.S. and the EU both began to regulate carbon by either cap and trade or by regulations. And since then, we have dramatically decreased our emissions. China chose not to. They chose not to for a reason. By ignoring emissions and by using coal as a cheap form of energy, you lower the cost of manufacturing. By lowering that cost, you attract more companies to move to your country that's cheaper to produce and your economy becomes stronger. Consistent with Paul Kennedy's observation, as their GDP has grown, in 2005, they were about a distant sixth in the world in GDP, and now they're second only to the US. In 2005, China was roughly 19th or 20th in manufacturing and emissions, and now they are far and away first in both. So their economic increase, coinciding with their energy usage, coinciding with their emissions, has now allowed them to militarize. Now, the U.S. has a trade. By the way, if you're another Asian country and you're trying to compete with China to get foreign direct investment, you also ignore emissions and you ignore them because it lowers your cost of it lowers your cost of production. You also use coal because it's the cheapest form of fuel. So we've set up a situation where our geopolitical I hate to say it, but let's just say rivals are deliberately pursuing a policy why their economy is stronger precisely because they ignore emissions. So what I think would be a wise thing to do would be to create a carbon border adjustment where the U.S., EU, U.K., Canada come together. And using our environmental standards, uh, we judge imports by our environmental standards. If the imported good has an intensity which is greater than ours, frankly, they pay a fee. If they get their emissions down, they don't have to pay the fee. This creates a dynamic where they are incentivized to have access to the EU, the US, probably 60% of the consumption worldwide. Uh, They're incentivized to lower their emissions. It levels the playing field so that our workers are not at a disadvantage. And it puts a little bit of the brakes upon China's militarization because they can't just kind of finance by ignoring the environment. So I clearly see it as a geopolitical issue. And I do see a carbon border adjustment as a cheaper, better way to approach our rivalry with China than, say, for example, war. A lot better and a lot cheaper. Well, that really creates a picture of a trajectory of where the globe could be going prioritizing emissions. And so, Senator Hagenlooper, I know you to occasionally be a philosophical person. So I want to I want to ask you a philosophical question, because a lot a lot of people in my industry have been feeling that this moment where energy is such a high priority will put climate on the back burner. And I've been arguing instead that although the pendulum of politics swings and the pendulum of, of climate politics is swinging right now, it is still ultimately moving directionally and, and the world will focus and care about 
climate directionally, no matter what moments we have where other things become higher priorities. I'm curious what your take on that is. Do you think I have a good read on that? Do you think that these things actually do flip flop back and forth? What's your philosophical assessment of our directional uh, trajectory? Well, there is always a pendulum in politics and things that that when that moment comes and, and people's focus shifts somewhat, you know, it does cause anxiety and concern in those people that suddenly what they thought was certainly about to happen gets delayed in some way. I don't see that here. I think what we're doing with the uh, what used to be called the Endless Frontier Act, uh, now it's called the Competes Act, but all this research that we're going to spend on a lot of it's on things like quantum computing and artificial intelligence, but a lot of it's on carbon capture and nuclear and other ways to address energy. I think that's going to be a big part of how we're going to make this transition. I also think that, you know, the cleaner U.S. energy companies become, the more of a role they're going to play in decarbonizing our economy. And, you know, to a certain extent, reducing methane is the price of admission. The methane rules we that we helped negotiate in Colorado, that Canada followed them, then the U.S. put them in place. Those rules are going to be part of the a basic part of the equation. And I think we're going to I think there's going to be an alignment that even as we recognize we've got to pay attention to the, the cost of gasoline. We're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're going to make sure that we stay very focused on maintaining the moment, the momentum that we have and, and really we will be very, very intentional not to lose the this keeping our eye on the ball that we have to really in the next few decades get to uh, a clean energy future. And that's that can't happen a day too soon. I mean, Bill can tell you about how much how much real estate they've lost uh, to rising tides over the last several decades. That's not going away. And the sooner we address that, the better. So I I think this is an alignment of self-interest. I don't think it's going to be a pendulum that's going to go back and forth and suddenly people are going to lose interest in clean energy. I think people are going to realize that the companies that focus on these new technologies are going to be the leaders in the next energy economy. Well, that's wonderful. And I'd I'd love to um, end on this note with one final question for both of you of enlightened, aligned self-interest, because I'm a ridiculous optimist and I want to see bipartisan collaboration continue to go forth. Senator Cassidy, what does future collaboration between the two of you look like? What can we all look forward to in terms of your of your leadership? I'll mention two things. I'm very appreciative. Uh, I'm very active on the issue of dyslexia. And John is a co-sponsor of the 21st Century Dyslexia Act. And it's both personal, but it's also important for our country. And so I'm so appreciative that he uh, agreed to do that. And anything that's bipartisan is more likely to be noticed. So I'll just say that in particular. Mm, Thank you. What about you, Senator Hagenlooper? What can we look forward to? Well, I think Bill and I have the benefit of having a, a good relationship where we, I think, appreciate each other outside of the politics. This morning, we had a, a vote on some lands on the Energy Committee, public lands, that he couldn't vote the way I voted. And we'll continue to talk about that. But it's not like we we have grievances between each other. I think we are both genuinely committed to working together on some of these big issues and letting, you know, sometimes we're not going to be able to agree and and Everyone has certain parts of an argument that they can't uh, they can't accept. But in, in something like climate and energy, there is so much opportunity to find an alignment of self-interest that I think 
I'm hopeful that while the bill and I can be part of that vanguard of people that take the time and, and are working even outside of congressional hours, trying to think through what does the roadmap look like? I mean, how are we going to get there with, you know, uh, guardrails so that the working person doesn't get stuck with the big energy bills? But at the same time, we address climate change 50 years from now. People are going to look back on this as the beginning of the great transition. And we want to make sure that they look back on that as a positive moment where, you know, the world became a better place. Well, Senator Higginluber, Senator Cassidy, on behalf of America, I'd like to thank you for working together. We need this kind of leadership. Thank you for understanding the importance of addressing both energy and climate simultaneously. Thanks so much for being on the Energy Thinks podcast. That's our episode for today. Thank you so much to Senator Higginlooper, Senator Cassidy, and all your teams for making this podcast possible. You know what was a game-changing insight for me? It was seeing live in real time that bipartisan conversation and collaboration is possible. It's easy to become discouraged and think politics in this country is broken, but it does not have to be. And we as citizens and leaders can demand leadership and solutions from our elected officials. And I love highlighting two people that choose to work in that fashion. I'd like to know what you found interesting or insightful. So please take a moment to let us know at energythinks.com. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, please rate us wherever you listen to your podcast. I'd like to thank Kayla Dolan, who helped make the Senator combo possible. And I'd also like to thank Adon Rubio, Lindsay Slaughter, and Michael Tanner for all things energy things. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.